0: The passengers panicked as smoke climbed into the sky. The flames pushed them further and further back toward the stern, and away from the safety of the lifeboats. The stormy seas rolled, and the ship rolled with it, making many lose their footing. The deck was scorching and melting the bottoms of their shoes, leaving them with two choices. Jump into the rolling seas below and possibly drown, or burn alive with their ship. Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, my name is Eleanor. Just a quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story may be disturbing to some, so viewer discretion is advised. Okay everyone, let's get into it. We are back to ocean liners after a bit of a break from them. Also, thank you all so much for being patient with me as I took my holiday break. We are back and more ready than ever. Today's story is tragic and bizarre, and we're going to start with a tad bit of backstory. On May 22, 1928, the United States government passed the Merchant Marine Act of 1928 in an attempt to revitalize the shipping market that was already getting to shift. The act created a $250 million construction fund for U.S. shipping companies to build new ships to replace their older counterparts. And with each loan, as much as 75% of it could be subsidized by the government and was meant to be paid back over the course of 20 years with low interest rates. For shipping companies like the Ward line, it was an opportunity they couldn't pass up. The Ward Line had been transporting passengers, cargo, and mail to and from Cuba for decades, and so two ships named in honor of Cuba were to be built. S.S. Oriente, named after the Oriente Province in Cuba, and S.S. Morro Castle, named after the Stone Fortress and Lighthouse in Havana. S.S. Morro Castle was an American ocean liner built for the Ward Line by Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company in Newport News, Virginia. Construction began in January of 1929, with the ship designated as Yard Number 337. It would cost $4 million to build the vessel, and she was launched on March 5, 1930, being completed on August 15, 1930. Before we continue with her career, let's look at her specs. Since she's an American beauty, all of her specs for weight and displacement will be in Imperial tons. SS Morrill Castle displaced 11,520 gross registered tons and 6,449 net registered tons. In Imperial measurements, she was 480 feet long, had a beam of 70 feet and 9 inches wide, and a depth of 18 feet and 5 inches deep. In metric measurements, that's 146.3 meters long, a beam of 21.6 meters wide, and a depth of 5.6 meters deep. She was capable of carrying 489 passengers in first and tourist classes with a crew of 240. Something incredible to note about her is that she kept the true spirit of ocean liners alive. What I'm referring to is her classic counter stern. Most ships at the time were being built with a flat cruiser stern. However, SS Moral Castle had the classic curvature of an Edwardian-era ocean liner. She also felt expensive and luxurious, which I absolutely love. Her U.S. official number was 230069, and her code letters were MJCR. Her call sign, which is KGOV, is still registered to the ship by the FCC, FCC or Federal Communications Commission, after all this time, and so it is unavailable for use by broadcast stations. Her port of registry was New York City, New York, and she'd sail from here to Cuba regularly. Now, for propulsion and equipment, we have a bit to cover. She had two turboelectric transmissions being fed by General Electric twin turbo generators that fed propulsion motors on twin propeller shafts. With this setup, she could travel an average service speed of 20 knots, which is 37 kilometers per hour and 23 miles per hour. She also had direction finding and submarine signaling equipment. Why does she have submarine signaling equipment? Well, I don't know, because it was deemed obsolete and was removed by 1934. In 1934, she received a gyro-compass and echo-sounding equipment. Okay, let's continue with her career. It's pretty brief, but we'll cover it all the same. Her maiden voyage commenced on August twenty third, 1930, and the voyage was satisfactory, with the 1,100-plus miles southbound trip taking place in just under 59 hours, and the return trip took only 58 hours. From 1930 into 1934, SS Moro Castle and her sister SS Oriente worked around the clock, punching in that overtime. They were rarely out of service and maintained a steady, happy clientele despite the Great Depression worsening worldwide. We do have to thank the prohibition of alcohol in the United States partially for her success, and this is because it was totally safe and legal for Americans to get a little hammered on their voyages down to Cuba. The rates to cruise with either vessel were also pretty affordable, attracting businessmen from Cuba and America as well as older couples that were more well-off. The ships, therefore, were incredibly popular. Things were going incredibly well for SS Moral Castle, and you know what else is going well? This video! If you're enjoying this video, leave me a like, subscribe to the channel for more content, and let me know down in the comments section below. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end, and for SS Moral Castle, that would be in September of 1934. This half of the story is essentially just a series of unfortunate events nautical style. Her final voyage began as she departed Havana on September 5th, 1934, and by the following afternoon, the ship was paralleled to the southeastern coast of the United States. Unfortunately, this area, as well as the entire coast of the United States, is known for what is called a nor'easter. A nor'easter is a storm along the east coast of North America, and is deemed as such because the winds over the coastal area are typically from the northeast. They can be incredibly powerful and quite deadly. Throughout the day on September 6th, 1934, the winds picked up and intermittent rains started, causing many passengers to retire to their rooms early. However, this isn't the weirdest or saddest part of this journey. Earlier in the evening on September 6th, Captain Robert Rennison Wilmot had his dinner in his quarters as he normally would. Shortly after, he complained of stomach pains. Because of his unfortunate passing, command of the ship shifted to the chief officer, William Warms. As day turned to night on September 6th, the winds got to speeds over 30 miles per hour as Morrill Castle trotted along up the eastern coast of the United States. On September 8th, 1934, around 2.50 in the morning, SS Morro Castle was sailing about eight nautical miles away from the coast of Long Island, New York, when all hell broke loose. A fire was detected in a storage locker within the first-class riding room on B-Deck, and it only took 30 minutes for the entire ship to be lit ablaze, with the fire licking at her fine furnishings and finishes. As the fire grew larger and hotter, acting Captain Worms attempted to beach SS Morro Castle. However, he had to give up this plan because of the need to launch lifeboats. Within 20 minutes after the fire was found at around 3.10 a.m., the fire had already destroyed the ship's main electrical cables, sending SS Morrill Castle and her passengers and crew into complete darkness. The radio stopped working around this time as well, so only one SOS signal was sent out, and to make matters worse, the bridge lost all ability to steer the ocean liner since the hydraulic lines were turned to ash as well. Passengers were cut off by fire amidships and weren't unable to go anywhere but the stern, so many of them retreated to the stern. However, most of the crew moved forward to the fo'c'sle, separating passengers and crew almost entirely. In many places, deck boards were piping hot to the touch and breathing was almost impossible in the thick smoke. Passengers were left with one horrible decision as the fire grew worse either jump down to the water that was churned up with enormous waves from the gusts of wind and damn near impossible to swim in, or burn alive aboard SS Moral Castle. A full cast of emotions was visible among the crew and passengers on deck. Some crew were absolutely astounding and tried to fight the fire, showing courage in a time of great fear. Other crew members were still incredibly helpful by throwing deck chairs and life rings overboard to provide swimmers with flotation devices. Of the ship's 12 lifeboats, only six were successfully launched. From the starboard side, lifeboats 1, 3, 5, 9, and 11. On the port side, lifeboat number 10. There was a combined capacity of 408 in these six boats. However, only 85 seats were filled, and mostly with crew. Many passengers sadly perished from not knowing how to use the life preservers. When they jumped into the water wearing them, they were either knocked out and drowned, or their necks were snapped and they died immediately. Remember that single SOS signal sent out earlier? It reached rescuers, but unfortunately, they were not quick to the punch. The first rescue ship on site was SS Andrea F. Luckenbach, with two other ships following after, Monarch of Bermuda and City of Savannah. They were slow in taking action, but they did mosey their way over to the rescue mission eventually. The fourth ship to arrive was SS President Cleveland, and they launched a motorboat that circled the Moro Castle. And they didn't see any swimmers, so they headed back to the ship, packed up, and left altogether. Two American Coast Guard ships, USCGC Tampa and USCGC Cahoon, arrived on scene. But unfortunately, they were too far to see any victims in the water, and therefore were little to no help. The Coast Guard's aerial station in Cape May, New Jersey, also did not send out their float planes until local radio stations started reporting there were dead bodies from SS Morro Castle washing up on shore in New Jersey beaches from Point Pleasant Beach to Spring Lake, which is a distance of about 5.3 miles or 8.53 kilometers. Over time, small boats showed up, but the large waves made it difficult to see people in the water. A small plane being piloted by none other than the governor of New Jersey and commander of the New Jersey Guard, Harry Moore, helped boats locate survivors and bodies by dipping his wings and dropping markers. I consider him a much-needed hero for this rescue. In total, 414 survivors were rescued of the 549 passengers and crew. For fatalities, 135 passengers and crew perished. Rest in peace. Telephone calls rang off the hook and radio stations were buzzing all over New Jersey, spreading the news of the horrors of the Moro Castle. Remarkably, the community banded together, with locals showing up along the coast to assist the injured, try to unite separated families, and retrieve the dead. By mid-morning, the ship was completely deserted and the Burning Hulk drifted ashore, coming to a halt in shallow water off Asbury Park, New Jersey, oddly at almost the exact same spot where the New Era had wrecked on November 13, 1854. Let me know if you'd like to see a video on this ship. While she rested near Asbury Park near the boardwalk, she became a popular tourist destination since it was possible to just walk out to the ship and touch her with your own bare hands. There were even stamped penny souvenirs and postcards for sale. However, this tourism would come to an end when S.S. Morrill Castle was deemed a total loss, and she was towed away on March 14, 1935. Most accounts state the ship was towed to Gravesend Bay and then on to Baltimore on March 29, 1935 with no issues, making it to the scrapyard in one piece. However, one account does state that she settled in the stern while being towed and sank, having to be refloated to make it to the scrapyard. Take that with a grain of salt, since it's only one account out of several. If you're on an audio-only format like Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, make sure to subscribe for more episodes and leave us a 5-star review, since it helps us reach more listeners like you. Check out our community tab on YouTube to keep up with us, and we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, back to the story. The fire's cause was never determined despite there being inquiries into the disaster. The main points to take away from the inquiries were first the criticisms against Captain Worms, who never left the bridge to determine the extent of the damage and kept the ship traveling at the same bearing and speed for some time. He also made no effort to utilize emergency lighting or the emergency steering gear as systems failed. Second, the crew's response to the fire, which was all over the place. There was no organized effort to fight and control the fire or close the fire doors. The crew also didn't take their regular fire stations, and worse than this, some crew made no effort to direct passengers to safety, leaving them to die. Most of the lifeboats launched were also filled with crew rather than passengers. And third, there was a delay in calling for assistance. However, Chief Radio Operator George White Rogers was deemed a hero since he took matters into his own hands when he did not receive orders from the bridge and sent out a distress signal. Don't get too excited about Rogers. There's a possibility he started this fire, since he allegedly was trying to kill his police colleague, Vincent Bud Doyle, with an incendiary device. Doyle was crippled after the fire of SS Morro Castle and spent the rest of his life trying to prove that Rogers had set the Morrill Castle ablaze. In 1954, Rogers was actually convicted of murdering a neighboring couple for money, and he died in 1958 in prison. As for other crew involved, Chief Engineer Ebon Abbott, Captain Worms, and Ward Line Vice President Henry Kabad were indicted on various charges relating to the fire of S.S. Morro Castle, including willful negligence. All three men were convicted and sent to jail, though an appeals court would overturn Worms' and Abbott's convictions, resting some of the blame on Captain Wilmot. At the end of the inquiry on March 27, 1937, the New York Times reported that an order by federal judge John C. Knox affixed liability at $890,000, averaging $2,225 per victim. In today's money, that's $48,933 per victim, which is a large chunk of change, but not the true value of a human life. That can never be repaid, especially to a bereaved family. Roughly half the claims made were for deaths, and 95% of the claimants agreed with the settlement. However, if the claimants took the money, they were then barred from pursuing further legal action against the Wardline or its subsidiary, the Agui Navigation Company. Every fire has its spark, and every spark needs its tinder. But before we get into that, this episode couldn't be possible without our lovely patrons. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwrecksunday to join. There were three major factors that contributed to the fire, and one of them was the crew's practices and deficiencies. According to surviving crew, Busy work they were often given was to repaint the ship to keep her looking brand new. Unfortunately, the thick layers of paint were also highly flammable, and strips of this paint broke off during the fire, spreading it to other areas. Not only this, but the storage locker that caught fire housed blankets that had been dry cleaned, and this was the 30s, so dry cleaning was done with flammable dry cleaning fluids. While it's unlikely that a significant amount of this fluid was still left on the blankets, it's still a factor we have to consider. The ship had fire doors with automatic tripwires that were designed to close when a certain temperature was detected, but unfortunately, these had been disconnected, and so the fire doors remained open. None of the crew closed any of the doors manually either. Though this is egregious, the 6-inch opening between the wooden ceilings and the steel bulkheads would have been sufficient means for the fire to spread anyway. When we think of firefighters, we think of those big hoses they attach to fire hydrants, right? Well, the hose stations on the promenade deck had been recently deactivated due to an incident a month before when a passenger had slipped on a wet deck by a leaking hose station and sued the ward line. According to regulations, there should have been regular fire drills held on each voyage, but only the crew participated in them. Passengers were not required to attend, and so many didn't. Nowadays, fire and lifeboat drills are mandatory for passengers and crew. For quite a while after the fire was found, the ship continued directly into the wind and at the same speed, fanning the flames and feeding the fire. Crewmen also broke windows on several decks to try and reach passenger accommodations, and this allowed more of that pesky wind into the ship to feed the fire. And finally, because there wasn't any definitive action taken to get an SOS message out from the captain, that left it up to the radio operators until the order came in around 3.18am, with the SOS being sent out at 3.23am. After five minutes, the fire distorted the signal, with the emergency generators failing just after this and transmissions stopped. That's a lot that the crew could have done to save the Moro Castle, but what about the ship herself? Well, her construction materials could also be partially to blame for the fire being worsened. The highly elegant and bougie decor, which was primarily glued ply paneling and veneered wooden surfaces, was highly flammable and allowed the fire to spread throughout the ship quickly. And finally, the last factor we are taking into account is the ship's structure and lack of safety features. Though the ship had fire doors, there was still a wood-lined 6-inch opening between the wooden ceilings and the steel bulkheads that we briefly mentioned earlier, and it basically provided a pathway for the fire throughout the ship. The ship had electric sensors that could detect fires in any of the ship's state rooms, the crew quarters, cargo holds, offices, and engine room, but there were none of these sensors in larger rooms like the dance hall, lounges, writing room, tea room, dining room, or library, delaying the response to the fire even more. Aboard the ship were 42 fire hydrants, but you could not use more than six at once. The crew, however, opened almost all of them at once, dropping the water pressure to a pitiful dribble everywhere. The ship also had a Lyle gun, which was a line thrower powered by a short-barreled cannon and was intended to fire a line to another ship to hasten passenger evacuation, and it was stored in the writing room, where the fire originated and rendered it useless. This gun exploded just before 3am, breaking windows and spreading the fire faster. And finally, according to surviving passengers, the fire alarms aboard SS Morro Castle weren't like blaring, annoying, and frightening fire alarms like today. Instead, they were described as sounding like a, quote, muffled, scarcely audible ring. For someone with tinnitus like me, they might not have even heard it. As for the victims, some of them are buried in the Mount Prospect Cemetery in Neptune, New Jersey along the coast. The rest were either lost to the sea or recovered and buried by their families. On September 8, 2009, the first and only memorial to the victims, survivors, and rescuers of SS Morrow Castle was dedicated. It's located in Asbury Park, New Jersey, on the south side of Convention Hall, very close to the spot where the burnt hulk of the ship came aground all those years ago. The day it was dedicated marked the 75th anniversary of the tragedy. The ship's bell is at SUNY Maritime's Fort Schuller and in September of 2023, her 5-ton bolt anchor was recovered from the water in Point Pleasant Beach. Luckily, in modern times, firefighting, fire suppression systems, and fire alert systems have come a long way, and fire drills and lifeboat drills are required for all passengers and crew before leaving any port. We just might have SS Moral Castle to blame for that. Rest in peace to the victims, and I hope the survivors and their families found peace. That is the bizarre, burning, and mind-boggling story of SS Morro Castle. If you liked that story and wanted to hear more Ocean Liner content, check out our playlist in the cards. Stay tuned next week for the story of SS Neuronic, a Canadian passenger ship that was destroyed by a fire in Toronto Harbor and killed over 100 people. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.